Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. cool let's hit it so uh what i want to do um let me do i'm going to start with a a six minute recap uh for what we would have went through the first half of the year okay i don't know why we preach for 40 minutes a week whenever i can sum up the whole first half of the year in roughly six minutes but it's the reality of what you guys are stuck with so let me just um kick off about a six minute recap then we have three simple points that i'm going to share with you to kind of help us wrap our mind around the book of first samuel and we're 1 Samuel is going to take us for the, between now until what's called Advent, which will be Christmas, which is coming more rapidly than any of us uh, wish it would come. And so uh, let's start with six-minute recap. You think I can do it? I think I can probably do it too. Okay. In the beginning of the year, we kicked off this series, right, called Lest We Turn. And the purpose behind that series is to look at what happened whenever Israel would turn to God as well as what would happen whenever Israel would turn their face away from God. And what we thought as pastors was that this would be a, a good series for us to enter into because our world was effectively falling apart. I don't know if you remember uh, 2020, but we had COVID. We had the 2020 election with the storming of capitals, and Portland was set on fire for like 221 days, not to mention that there was a, a lockdown. We had everything, literally all sides politically were coming against us. People were rising up against other individuals. There was anxiety. There was was fear, there was tension, and at the same time, there was no toilet paper because <laughs> for some reason, people bought all the toilet paper instead of buying, you know, food that doesn't perish. And so that's America. And uh, we ran out of TP, right? But in that, just an incredible amount of distress, if you can recall, right? An incredible amount of anxiety. And even as we're coming out of 2020, now we have the Delta variant. And what happens? Immediately, we get some more anxiety, some more distress that comes. And so with all that chaos, we want to take a look at, at what happens whenever we remain faithful and what happens whenever we stop remaining faithful. So you might remember, uh, we preached through the book of Joshua, Judges, the book of Ruth, and now today we'll kick off First Samuel. But first, in Joshua, uh, we learned that Moses had passed away after he had set the people free from Egypt, and he kind of passed the mantle to Joshua and to a guy named Caleb. Joshua was told... Only be strong and courageous. Do you remember? Only be strong and be very courageous. And God said to him, all you have to do is submit to God's promises, to God's people, and to God's word. And if you do that, then you'll receive the promised land. He said, the land has been promised to you. Just walk to the promised land. Just go over there and get it. There's that land. Just go over there and get it. And the people, Israel, kept getting in the way. They kept messing up God's plan. They didn't completely thwart it. They just kind of jacked it up a little bit and got in the way. So the people of Israel start doubting, they start turning from God, they turn to all these false gods to worship instead of worshiping the one true God of creation. So the people would turn and God would pursue, then the people would turn and then God would pursue, and the people would turn and God would pursue. And if you can remember, uh, we kind of had this saying, I think Carrie has it for me, where we would say that they experience commitment, 
Uh, complacency and compromise. Do we have that? Yeah, commitment, complacency, and compromise. And that was the first four months. We just looked at that and kept saying it over and over and over again. And the scriptures kept saying, the next generation forgot God, and the next generation forgot God, and God was faithful, and the next generation forgot God, to which we kept saying as a church then, if that's true, then kind of this overarching big idea for the series, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And we just kept coming back to these things, commitment, complacency, compromise, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. And so eventually, almost all of Israel turned from God. That was the book of Joshua. And then we entered into the book of Judges, where we got introduced some judges like Ehud, if you remember, I doubt you fully remember until I say this, he stabbed a dude while he was on the john. You remember that guy now? Right? You can remember that. You're not going to remember Ehud. He had this guy named Gideon who conquered and did an incredible job and said he didn't want anything to do with being a king, but then he claimed all the fame for all of his victory and said that he was, in fact, kind of like a king. And then we had Samson. So when Ehud, Gideon, Samson, and so many others, Samson was made righteous, but that cat did anything but what was righteous. He was a horrific human being, if you remember. And, and in that, though, the author, he takes us through all these different judges to show us this one thing. Everyone is eventually going to flee from God. So Ehud, whenever he went in to attack, he had a whole nation that was with him. Whenever Gideon attacked, he only had an army. And by the time we got to Samson, he had only Samson. We didn't have anyone else with Samson. And the point of that was to show, to show this transgression here, this change that everyone will eventually leave. And then David took us through, Pastor Davis took, it, took us through one of, um, literally one of the worst stories in the whole entire Bible, the final story of Judges. And Judges 21, 25 uh, ended with this. I think Carrie has this too. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Maybe we don't have that. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and there was no king in Israel, which we established if everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, then they were clearly doing what was wrong in God's eyes, right? The purpose of these uh, few books here is to reveal this constant longing for a king, this constant longing for a leader, for a redeemer, for a Messiah to come and, and to, to help change the trajectory of Israel. And yet, that Messiah does not come, that Savior does not come, and that king is not established. Uh, the next book after Judges in our book is the book of Ruth, which is a beautiful short story, one of the most beautiful short stories ever written. Um, but in the Hebrew Bible, the book that comes after, directly after the book of Judges, is First Samuel. It's not Ruth. And the point of that is this, so that whenever they would pick up 1 Samuel, whenever they would, when they would open up their scroll and they would start to read this 1 Samuel, they would think, maybe this is the king. Maybe this is finally the moment that this Messiah is going to come, that this Savior is going to come, that he's going to redeem the people. And so in this, just this continued longing in the Old Testament is what we see. So I'm going to show you just three quick things, uh, hopefully quick things for you. One, we're going to look at the introduction uh, to Hannah. We're going to see who Hannah is, kind of this primary figure here in the text. We're going to look at Hannah's prayer, the prayer of Hannah, Hannah's prayer, and then we're going to look at Hannah's blessing. And then I'm going to close this out with a real simple gospel application. Sound good? Just a quick overview for where we're headed. Lots of scripture. I'm not going to have you stand. I'm just going to read straight through it. Sound good? All right, let's hit it. First Samuel 1, uh, 1 and 2, the introduction to Hannah. Lots of words, lots of names. You only have to remember one. That's Hannah, okay? There was a certain man... Okay. There was a certain man of Ramaethim, kind of crazy word, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, that's the husband, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. Man, the New Testament was a lot easier, wasn't it? 
He had two wives. Uh-oh, polygamy never goes well. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the other name was Penea. And Penea had children, but Hannah had no children. All right, so anytime there's a genealogy in the beginning of a book, this reveals to the Israelites, and then by extension to us, that they need to pay attention. So anytime they see a genealogy, the Israelites would immediately thought, man, something new is happening here. There's a new season. There's a new story. Something is taking place here in the text. We need to pay attention to this. This genealogy, as simple as it was, would have sparked some interest for the nation of Israel. We read this and we think, that's just a bunch of names I don't know how to say. I'm just going to murmur through those names. But for them, they're like, man, like this, is, this is incredible. This is something new. What's beautiful about this, though, is that the reality is this. In all those names that are listed, there's literally nothing spectacular about any of the people that are listed. They're completely ordinary. There's no one is important in that text. No one stands out in that text. There's not a name or a place that is mentioned in the introduction that would lead us to think, oh man, I remember whenever we read that in Joshua, that stands out to me. There's literally nothing significant, nothing extraordinary. These are completely ordinary people. There are three people, though, that technically stand out. I said one is important, but there are three that stand out. We're given a husband whose name is Elkanah, who will barely be mentioned anymore. This husband has two wives. Again, polygamy, while it is okay in Scripture, never goes well. Anytime there's two spouses, I jokingly say, I have one wife, she's enough, right? For those of you that that are married, you know. Imagine having two on your worst day. How's that going to go for you, okay? Okay, And so you have Elkanah, who's married to two different women, which is not going to go well. And he marries the first, who would have been Hannah. And he marries the second, who would have been Paniah. Okay, And of these two wives, only one of them can actually have kids. And so Paniah has these kids. And, and what's sad and interesting about this is that this, this husband, right? he loves Hannah. Hannah actually means favored or favorable in the Hebrew. Or the word grace would be the same. Hannah means all of those Things. And so while she is barren, this is who Elkanah loves, loves dearly, loves faithfully to some degree because he marries a second woman named Penea. Penea literally means fruitful in the scriptures. And she was fruitful. She has multiple kids. And you know that she has to have a lot of kids because during this time, for you to even have two children to reach adulthood, you had to have at least 10 kids, um, just like, uh, according to history. So that she would have had to reproduce <laughs> copious amounts of kids, okay, to even have two of them make it into adulthood. So Pania is kind of married just so that she can provide security, so that she can provide family, so she can provide wealth and status and standing in the culture, okay? That's really all she exists in the relationship for. So think about this for just a tick as we get in this. How dysfunctional do you think this family dynamic would be? You have a guy who's married two ladies, one who he loves dearly, as we're going to see in a moment, and one who he loves simply because she can breed. She's just a breeder for the family. Okay? Maybe it makes sense that Pania is such a terrible person to be around because of her story. I'm being serious. Can we just have some grace for this lady for just a minute? Because we're going to read this in a minute, and you're going to hear some heavy language about her, but just think, enter into the narrative and think about what that family dynamic was like. Verse 3, Carrie. Verse 3, 3 through 8. Says this, we'll continue. Now, this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions, plural, to Paniah, his wife, and to all her sons and all the daughters, because she's fruitful, but to Hannah, his favored, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, somebody say rival. 
rivals, so crazy, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, Hannah, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it womb, so it went up, uh, so it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she, Pania, used to provoke her, that's Hannah. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Sometimes, husbands, it is better to just shut up. <laughs> right? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Why am I not more than ten sons to you? It's just better to weep with those who weep, as Jesus says. So once a year, they would go up to Shiloh. Here's what's happening. And they would go up for what's called a Feast of the Lord. If you can remember back in Joshua, that's where this temple would have been erected. And this is when they would have started going here and partaking in this feast. Well, from the meat that was sacrificed to the feast of the Lord, they would actually have communion. Uh, communion with God and communion with one another. Not like the little communion cups that you get handed on the way in that are plastic with wafers and, and juice. They would have had a full-on meal together as the people of Israel, and it would have been a part of their worship service. They would have been like struggling to get into these little cups, or rather, right, they would have had a feast together. And so Elkanah, the husband, would give portions, plural, to Pania, who is fruitful and has multiple kids, which makes sense because he's got to feed all those babies, right? So he's going to feed all the boys and all the girls. But to Hannah, his favorite, he would give a double portion, which is interesting, right? It's an interesting one. One, it's interesting to show your lady that's how you care about her. Like, hey, girl, let me, let me give you two servings of mashed potatoes, right? It doesn't make any sense, but that's what he does. And, and not only does he serve her twice in that capacity, but he does it in a very public way. And so not only does Pania, the one who's just kind of a breeder in the family, like recognize this favoritism that he has towards Hannah, but also so would everyone else around like everyone around would have seen that, which would have added to the dysfunctional family dynamic that takes place here, uh, which makes sense why maybe Pania um, was a little bit difficult to be around because Elkanah, while he, I think, enjoyed having her around for security, was not as in love with her. So for Hannah, though, to not be able to procreate, for Hannah to not be able to have kids meant a lot. And we've talked about this a bunch in the old Testament last year, but let me refresh your memory. For Hannah to not be able to have a kiddo meant that she had no security. It meant that she had no future, no inheritance. She had no 401k. She had no privileges at all as a woman. She brought literally in their culture, according to their culture, she brought nothing of value to the table whatsoever. Women who could not have kids during this time were considered less than dogs. They were not equal to anyone or equal standing to anyone in that culture around them. To not be able to conceive would have been hard enough on the family, but imagine being an outcast in the whole culture. And then take it a step further, not only is that difficult for the family, but then you have to live with this woman, kind of this sister wife, if I may, and, and she only treats you terribly all the time. The reason I said say rival earlier is because this is the only place in the Bible where the word rival is used for a person instead of for the climate. The word rival in the Hebrew is, that, is the same word for a hurricane, like for the tumultuous, incredible client or climate of a hurricane. And so literally it's saying like she was a hurricane to be around. She was chaotic to be around. She would have been rough to spend some time with. You tracking? It's the only place in the Bible where the word rival is used for this woman instead of used for the climate. All that to say she would have been very, very difficult towards Hannah. And not just for a day. This is year after year, it said. Year after year they go through this. This family lives in this tension. So what does Hannah do? What's Hannah going to do? Surprisingly enough, she prays. Verse 9, Hannah's prayer. Second thing, Hannah's prayer. And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, 
had communion and rose. Hannah rose, very deliberate. Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, that's Hannah, was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. I think before we get in this, it's probably important to note that this was not Hannah's first prayer. Right? Year after year, they've been going up to Shiloh. Year after year, they've been making sacrifices. They've been having communion. It is far unlikely that this is the first time that she has made this vow. Like Everyone in the room has been in the same position that Hannah's in right now. God, if you would just fill in the blank, then I will do this. We, we have some bartering prayers sometimes, don't we? God, if you would just, then I would. If you will do this, then I will. And so for years, Hannah has been praying. For years, Hannah's been asking for a son. For years, she's been praying like this, being faithful and, and going up and pleading with the Lord and interceding and asking God to provide in this specific way. And, and up to this point, God has not done anything for her at all. And so what I think is happening here is that something has changed in this prayer. Right? It's likely that the heart that Hannah has towards God has shifted in this prayer. And that's what the author has chosen to to reveal to us, to allow us to see. And God has waited until this moment, like until this heart has shifted, till her heart has changed to actually begin to grant this prayer to her. Because what, what Hannah doesn't say is, if you just give me a son, then I'll provide for him and I'll take care of his needs and I'll help raise him up in the faith. Actually, what she says is this, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. If you give me a son, no razor will ever touch this son's Head. And what she's doing in that moment is she's making what's called the Nazarite vow, which you might remember from Judges and Samson. That she's going to have to shave his, she's, no, hair, no razor's going to touch his hair. His hair is going to grow long. He's not going to eat of the vine, nothing of the fruit, right? He's going to live in a way that is righteous, that is above reproach. Everything that Samson most certainly did not do when we went through Samson, she's dedicating this boy to. So she's not just saying, hey, give me a son because I want a son. She's saying, give me a son so that I can give him back to you. So I can give him back over to you. It seems to me that her heart in this prayer has changed. And, and it's this, to be clear, I think God was going to give her a son either way because God is sovereign. But I think God waited until her heart changed so that she could rightfully place the glory and honor on the Father instead of taking any credit for it herself. Uh, I only know one way to, to illustrate this. So if you uh, give me a moment, let me set it up for you and, and I'll try to do it this way. Um, Whenever I was on staff at the first church I worked at, I, I gave a total of like $300 to the church over the course of three and a half years, um, which isn't very much uh, money for where I was at in life. It's definitely nowhere near 10% of what I made. Uh, the reality is I, I, didn't, I didn't have any money. I didn't make any money. I took a $40,000 pay cut to go work at Troy United Methodist Church to be a student pastor. Uh, I made $300 less a month than what I needed to pay my bills. And, and in that, I thought, man, there's no way I could ever give to Jesus. I'm not going to do that. That's ridiculous. I need to instead hoard my resources. And in the midst of me not giving to the Lord, uh, I received tons of money. 
Uh, I got multiple checks from family to help pay bills. My grandparents like wrote me a check. They're like, hey, here's $6,000. We think we might die, and we know you're going to get married one day. Hopefully, it'll help. Like, just random things. Like, you're nowhere near dying. Like, why would you do this? And so just all these kind of random things would happen. People would just kind of drop money on me. And, and the reality is I didn't give generously. And so it's not like a prosperity gospel where it's like, if you give more money, then God will give to you. That's ridiculous and nowhere in the scriptures. I didn't give any money, and yet God was completely faithful to me, completely generous, gave to me faithfully, I think gave to me joyfully. Uh, in the midst of being there, making no money, Andrea and I got engaged, uh, we got married, like all, everything that we had planned, planned, everything we had planned happened, and, and it was nothing that I had done. Uh, what's interesting is about that is you f- fast forward, quitting that job, I feel called to plant a church, to start a church, so I quit that job, I go meet with Steve Mizell, and I tell him that I want to plant a church. He's a lead pastor at a church called Trailhead in Edwardsville. And I sit down with him, and I say, bro, I feel like God's called me to plant a church. I don't know anything about what that means. I don't know anything about planting a church. What do I do? He said, well, raise $100,000 and quit your job. I said, cool, I'll see you in four months. And then I did. So I quit my job. I raised $114,000, and I went to Trailhead. Whenever I was at Trailhead, he was the first pastor I ever had that just sat down with me and actually pastored me. And he talked to me about tithing. And he said, hey, you need to tithe. And I was like, yeah, I do that. And he was like, uh, you need to tithe like a minimum of 10%. I was like, bro, do you not understand? I just quit my job. And now I'm fundraising, which means I'm dependent on a bunch of people that I don't know to give me money and pay my bills. He's like, I get it. But the Lord gave faithfully, and so you should give faithfully. And he walked me through the gospel, a gospel-centered approach to tithing. That's for another sermon. I'll share that with you some other time. And so we did as a family. And whether it was $4,000 that came in or it was $400 that came in, it didn't matter. We gave to the Lord. And you know what the Lord did? He provided the exact same way that he did whenever I wasn't being generous. Nothing changed. We got air conditioner units given to us. It was the hottest summer we'd had in 10 years. We just had a baby. Someone gifted us with a whole AC unit, all that change. We had multiple checks were given to us outside of fundraising that came. Listen, God was no different. Whether I gave generously or whether I did not give generously, the Lord was faithful. But which one of those do you think, which season do you think my heart was changed and my posture was different in my giving? Which, which season do you think that whenever I received a blessing from the Lord, I looked at him and said, thank you, Jesus, instead of just saying, huh, okay, wow, I got a check in the mail from my grandparents who think they're dying. What a coincidence, you know? I think it's the same for Hannah. Because God is faithful, right? And and he is sovereign. He's in control over all things. So I don't think that Hannah started praying and started bartering with the Lord, and then the Lord was like, okay, I'm going to give you what you want because you're going to give it back to me. But rather, here's what I do think. I think Hannah's posture changed during this worship service for some reason. The Holy Spirit came in, changed her heart, changed the way that she prayed. And and probably for the first time, she prayed and she said, here's the deal. If I have this son, I will most certainly give this son back to you. And I think it was after that moment that God said, in his sovereignty, now's the time. Now that your posture is different, now your worship is different, now that everything about you is different and more inclined to worship me, now I'm going to give you this son. Because Hannah's not asking for a son that she can keep. Like, she's asking for a son that she can give away. Think about that for a second. In a culture where if you're not, if you can't get pregnant in this culture, you're literally a dog. And she says, the one thing I want, the one thing that will give me status and privilege and security, like, will secure our place at the estate, will secure our livelihood, will secure our position and the way people that look at me in this culture, like, everything could shift with one baby. And she says, and if you give me this one baby, 
I'll give them back to you. Like Hannah's not asking for more, church. She's asking for less. She's asking for less privilege. For le- How do you think that goes? She can't have a baby. Everyone looks at her like a dog. She has a baby, and then she surrenders him to the priesthood. In a culture that is just this dysfunctional, how do you think that goes for her? Do you think it gets better? She already has to live with Panina the hurricane. What do you think happens in her culture? They think, what is wrong with you? Why would you give your son to the Lord? Why would you do that? This is your one chance, your one shot here at society, and she's willing to give him away. Hannah's prayer. Last one, Hannah's blessing. What does Hannah do? What does Hannah get? Let's read it. 1 Samuel 1, 12 through 18, and then I'll close out with the gospel. And she continued praying before the Lord, and Eli, that's the priest that was there at the temple, observed her mouth, just looking at her mouth, which is kind of weird. If you ever have a pastor just staring at your mouth, just say, hey, that's kind of weird, bro, okay? (laughs) Don't do that. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. Listen to her. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Do you hear this? Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So what happens here in Hannah's blessing? First, Hannah gets chewed out by a pastor, which is interesting. What does Eli say? What are you, drunk? Like, what's, and why is that significant? Because it reveals the culture and what was taking place here at the temple. It, it reveals literally how jacked up the world had become right here. That he, this kind of, he's a priest at the temple, but you can think about him like a pastor at a church. And he's looking at this woman who's praying. And, the, and in his mind, he's not like, oh, surely she's worshiping the Lord. He's like, surely she's been drinking too much. Clearly, she's gotten drunk off the communion wine because people don't come to church and pray anymore. That's how messed up this culture was. Co- corruption had ran so rampant in Israel that the pastor cannot actually fathom the reality of someone worshiping a church. That's a messed up culture, man. And so Hannah says, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not drunk, pastor. Believe it or not, I'm actually worshiping God. I'm actually pleading with him. When she said, I'm pouring my soul out to the Lord, I have great anxiety and great vexation. And Eli is like, oh man, now I got to pastor somebody, right? Like I haven't had to do that in a while. And so, and so he's like, now he's got to like kind of engage her in this situation, right? With great anxiety and vexation, she says. Oh my gosh, listen, when the hurricane hits, church, do you pour your soul out to the Lord? She's pouring her soul out to the Lord. And then here is is what gets me. Just on faith, check it out, just on faith, Hannah's face is no longer sad. Just on faith alone, she has not had a baby. She has no idea what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen because we have the whole story. She has no clue what's going to happen. And yet on faith, she is joyful. Like one would think that the text would read, Hannah prayed, Hannah became pregnant, Hannah found joy. But that's not what the text says. The text reads, Hannah prayed, Hannah found joy, and then later Hannah is pregnant, and she gives birth to Samuel. So before God answers Hannah's prayer, she's no longer sad. She just finds her comfort in the Lord for the first time, probably in years, it looks like. And for us, then, that's an incredible picture of faith, right? Before God answers the prayer, Hannah's no longer sad. 
That's a good definition of faith for us, right? Faith is believing in God even when he doesn't answer your prayers. Faith is believing that God is good and just and trustworthy in the midst of the hurricane. Whenever people are coming against you and the world's kind of coming against you in the midst of COVID, in the midst of 2020, and then we ask the question, how did the church do in 2020? Did it look as like as if the church as a whole in America was a church who entered into prayer with great anxiety and vexation before the Lord? Or does it look like that the church has had a little bit too much time on their hands and effectively stopped worshiping? Because that's what happened, right? I feel a little bit like Eli as people started coming back to church. Like, oh, you still, oh you're, you're actually going to come here and worship. Interesting. <laughs> Thought you were just going to stay home, you know? So I get it, you know? We're not as bad as Israel in that regard, but... Faith is pouring out your soul before the Lord. Listen, because you just have nowhere else to go. Hannah didn't have anywhere else to go, so she found her hope and her future and her security in God in this moment, not in a son. It's interesting for us to know this, to note this, because here's the deal, and here's where 1 Samuel is going to take us. This is the shortest sermon I've ever preached for you. Israel looked for a king to find their hope and security in. Never found it. Uh, Hannah kicks off the story looking for hope and security in a son. Most certainly was not going to find it. God looks at both of them, Israel and Hannah, and says, here's the deal. You can look for all the hope and all the security in the world that you want. You're never going to find it in a king. You're never going to find it in a son. You're only going to find it in God. You're only going to find it in me, is what he would say. So Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and King David, these are the primary figures in 1 Samuel that we're going to see, that we're going to keep hearing from, we're going to keep coming back to, Hannah, Samuel, Saul, King David. If you don't know how this story goes, if you're unfamiliar with 1 Samuel, Samuel does not become a king. Samuel replaces Eli as a priest. And then the people are still going to want a king. What are they going to do? They're going to inaugurate their own king, and his name's going to be what? Saul. And Saul is going to be a beautiful man, tall, incredibly handsome, the Bible says, and a tyrant. He's literally going to destroy their nation in every way that you could possibly imagine. And then God's going to choose someone. Who's that person going to be? King David. King David's also going to be a really easy, beautiful man, beautiful blue eyes, David, little shepherd boy. He's also going to destroy the nation. That's what he's going to do too. So, and what's the point of that, right? The point of that is this. Neither one of these kings are ever going to satisfy. They're never going to bring the redemption that the people want. Whether it was uh, Israel's anointed or whether it was God's anointed, a man after God's own heart, we know what King David's going to get into if you know the story. He's a mess. He's like Samson, but a king, right? He does all the same things that Samson does, and yet he is God's anointed. And from King David and within King David comes the promise of a nation that will last forever and a kingdom that will reign forever and a kingdom that will come, a king that will come, and he will reign over everyone forever. And we know that all of this in 1 Samuel is simply pointing us to Jesus. It's all a preview, a kingdom preview is what we would call it, a kingdom foreshadowing that there is no one in this text that is ever going to be the hero besides Jesus. Not a priest, not a king, not a prophet. All of them are simply foreshadowings. They're all pointing to a type of Christ, if I may, pointing to Christ. Let me end it with 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. A little gospel for you. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's Christ. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And so what we're going to see throughout the near, near, here between now and Christmas, basically, almost Christmas, is that Jesus is the king, 
that every other king in this text is going to point us to. That he's the one who's going to rule in victory. Jesus is the perfect son that all the longing of Israel has. Maybe this is the Messiah, maybe the Savior, maybe this is the fill in the blank. That only Jesus is going to be this perfect son that's going to come. And most certainly, he's going to be the perfect priest that stands between us. That allows us to, to intercede for us and allows us to enter into this kingdom forever. That's where we're headed for First Samuel. Sound good? Yep. Dang, 27 minutes. You're welcome. All right, let me pray and we'll take communion. Yeah, let's do it. God in heaven, thank you so much. I'm not sure if we should be clapping about that or not. But uh, God, thankful for First Samuel. Thankful for the opportunity to just give a brief uh, introduction uh, for it. Excited about where we're going to go over these next few months. Uh, excited to kind of get into the text a little bit more, get into the story, see how this thing pans out for us. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would anoint it as you did the first uh, four and a half months that we sat in it. It's my favorite series so far to date. It's super fun. So God, I'm, I'm praying, Lord, that you would uh, continue to establish and build your church to your name and fame. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.